2: Welcome to the program. I so badly want to say the Monday program but it's not Monday. It just feels like Monday. It's the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we do every weekday at 4 o'clock is to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. And we'd love to have your phone calls. 340-9585 is the phone number. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free if you're outside the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR numerically at 630-5757 you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free calvary chapel of san antonio mobile app If you're driving in your car, I tell you, because I want you to be safe, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. And because it's Tuesday, we don't have a lot going on at all, so I'll get right to the questions. But let me say this. If you listen real carefully, you can hear nothing. There hasn't been a kid in this church all day. School's out, and wow, it's been really, really quiet. Got a lot done, but I think I prefer the noise. I really think I prefer the noise. Hope you had a great Memorial Day uh, holiday yesterday. Paul and I spent the whole day. I didn't even come into the office, which almost never happens, but uh, we got to spend the whole day together. That was a blast, and uh, I also likewise hope that you had a great weekend in church. Uh, we did here, we were in Luke chapter 2, finishing Luke chapter 2, and I um, just pray the Lord used you and blessed you, and you got to tell somebody else how much Jesus loves them. One more time, three four zero ninety five eighty five. My first question is uh, an interesting one, and I might go off a little bit unless somebody calls and breaks up the, the what I'm going to say, but it comes from our mobile app, uh, Anonymously, It says anonymous too. I'm not sure what that means. Um, And I think, I'm not sure of this either, but I think it comes from um, uh, the last question we had on last Friday's program, the last live program, um, when somebody said in their statement, I don't believe you have to ask to be forgiven to go to heaven. Uh, You obviously have to believe in Jesus. But what I said was, it's simple to be saved. He's as close as your mouth And your heart, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and I would add that he's coming back again, then you're going to be saved. God doesn't make it difficult. But here's what this question is, or statement really. After telling Anonymous how simple it is to be saved, you should have told them how hard it is to pick up one's cross to follow and be obedient. That the walk of a Christian is a daily battle which can wear out the most ardent believer. Now, Anonymous too, and this is for everybody in the audience, here's what I really want you to understand. And this isn't me trying to sound super spiritual. It's just something that the Bible teaches us day by day. It's true that hard things happen. But to pick up our cross every day is a command. And we can't even do that in our own strength. That's why God provides the power to do it. And when you say the walk of a Christian is a daily battle which can wear out the most ardent believer, I think, Anonymous, too, your your perspective is sort of askew here. You see, the walk of a Christian is a daily privilege and honor. Again, it's not without difficulty. I don't want to sound naive here, nor am I trying to put myself on a pedestal like, well, I don't have the problems everybody else has. I have problems. My heart's been broken three times today. Three times. Sometimes it's really difficult, but the walk is empowered by Jesus. The walk of a Christian only gets difficult. It only wears us out or burns us out when we're trying to do it in our own strength. And I think sometimes we look at the temptations that come our way, we look at all the choices that are out there, we think, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it, and we end up failing often because we're trying to do it rather than letting Him do it through us. If any of you have been listening to this radio program for any length of time, you've probably heard me say, just be with Jesus a hundred times. Maybe more. I'll give you an example. This morning, I was out doing my exercises, Paul and I would go to the gym, but even before we go to the gym we do a lot of cardio stuff, a lot of running and jumping stuff, so I was out doing mine, Paula was in the house doing hers. And I'm just thinking, you know, the running is hard, It's it was hot out, but I like the heat, but I mean it was hot and uh, I'm old, I turned 67 Thursday and it's just really harder sometimes than others to exercise, joints hurt and things like that, this is really hard. But then when I was finishing my workout, what I was aware of that's really important for us to consider here is that my walk with Jesus isn't at all like that. All I have to do is be with Him. He does the heavy lifting. He does the work. And I think our perspective is just too wrong. You know, We think saying no to sin and temptation is difficult. It's not. Be with Jesus and you'll say no. It's only hard. We're trying to do these things on our own. Again, I want to be completely clear here. Hard things happen. Really hard things happen. But Jesus does the work. And anything and everything that we try to do in our own strength is going to fail. That's why the Apostle Paul said in the context of sharing in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus himself said, apart from me you can do nothing, but with God all things are possible. And I think sometimes, Anonymous too, when we focus on how difficult things are might be, I think we're giving a false impression to people who are believers or new believers. This Christian walk is not a daily battle. I can tell you what's really hard. I'm a late-life Christian. I think most of you know I didn't get saved until I was just a couple months short of my 40th birthday. You want to know what's hard? Hard is living in this life and walking without Jesus. By comparison, walking with Jesus isn't hard at all. Pick up your cross, you got to die. That's all. Just die to self so you can live for Jesus. And all we have to do is make the choice. And when we make the choice, God does the rest of the work. If you find yourself getting tired, not physically, I'm not talking about that, but spiritually tired, if you feel overwhelmed by circumstances, you're trying to do it on your own. I always think of the Israelites walking through the Exodus wilderness. And they complained so much about their circumstances. Their eyes were on the things that they could see. Their hearts were really focused on what they didn't have instead of what they did have. And you know what, Anonymous, too, they didn't understand to the point of being able to enjoy the fact that their clothes weren't wearing out, that they didn't get any of the diseases, of Egypt or any of the diseases of the pagan peoples through whose lands they traveled. I think it's just too easy for us to focus on the hard things instead of focusing on the privilege it is to be with Jesus. I don't know where I would be. I'd be dead, of course, but I, but I don't know where I would be uh, in a spiritual sense if, in fact, I didn't um, report for duty every morning What about me, Lord? What about today? That needs to be our clarion call all the time. So, Anonymous, I hope that explains where I was coming from. K from San Antonio called the studio and wants to know what happens to babies who have been aborted or young children who have passed on and never reached the age of accountability. K, they would instantly go into the presence of David. By the way, tomorrow in our Bible study, if you can tune in at CalvaryEssay.com, uh, I'm going to be giving one of the proof texts of that very thing. When King David's son, the, the one that was born out of his sin with Bathsheba, uh, when he died, David said, I can't go to him I mean, he can't come to me, but I will go to him." So babies who are aborted, uh, babies who die before the age of accountability, and we never know what that is because they're different for everybody, um, they go instantly into the presence of the Lord. Um, Okay, one of these uh, times not too long ago, uh, in a Bible study that I was doing, I said, uh, I was talking about abortion, it was it was in the context of the study, I'm not preaching a topical message, but uh, I made mention of the fact that, that women who've had abortions and given their life to Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven, and one day you will see that child. And you know, there's a, a palpable sense in the congregation that that's good news, but But one lady came up to me after the service with tears in her eyes and she said, I'm so ashamed I had an abortion and I don't want to see that baby. The the baby will hate me. And, And I said, no, it's not like that at all. Your child will be in heaven. Whatever the perfect age is, that's the age he or she will be. And you'll be able to see just how forgiven and how loved you are. It's something that won't even come up. It'll be just a completely different order of things. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie that, that just came out on the, the late Apostle Paul's life. Um, one of the things that tormented him in life was attacks from the enemy, showing him the faces of the little kids that he caused to die or, or had put to death, and some of the other victims of his murderous rant. And then at the end when he went to heaven, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but at the end when he went to heaven, that same little girl's face was the first one that greeted him, and it wasn't anything at all like the nightmares that he had suggested it would be. It's okay, those children go instantly into the presence of the Lord. hope that answers your question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Michelle. Uh, I have questions questions that I am confused over and need clarification on. I'll give a little background. After my husband died, I reconnected with my high school sweetheart. We talked for some time. He was a great shoulder to cry on. Old feelings resurfaced, and new ones emerged. Long story short, we no longer live together, the inference there that they moved in together and were sexually active. We no longer live together and have decided to put the relationship on hold for now. We were going to break it off, but decided to just take a break. My questions are these, I know sex outside of a committed relationship is wrong, like in the confines of marriage. For example, one night stands sleeping with random strangers, but if someone is in a committed relationship with someone for years and plans on staying committed to that person until eventual marriage, why is it wrong to sleep with them? She says, I love this man and do want to be with him, but there's been a lot of past hurt on him that can only he can get into if he decides to. That's the whole reason the marriage has been postponed at this time. Otherwise, we would have been married already. I trust this man completely since we were so close in high school, and our parents are best friends up until his parents passed away. I want to do what's right. Therefore, the reason I'm emailing and asking is that. Michelle, a couple of things. First, um, the Bible doesn't say that sex outside of a committed relationship is wrong. And this is what we have to understand. All sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. And the decision you have to make is, who do you love more, Jesus or this man? Now, before I get into the rest of the question, I really want you to understand, I understand loneliness. We deal with it with people all the time. I understand temptation. I understand this internal yearning to be together. But, but those are things that God has put in, put in your heart and your husband died. Um, having emotions, having feelings again makes you feel a little bit alive. But here's the thing you need to understand. Two things. One, if this man really loved you, he wouldn't have sex with you. Unless he wasn't a Christian, and clearly this man's not a Christian. A born-again man, a truly born-again man, would not have sex with somebody he's not married to. The Bible says, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, that people who live like that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the feelings you have in your heart for this guy are feelings, not necessarily for this guy, but feelings that are given by God. He wants you to be with somebody. He, he's going to provide an answer that need. But he would never bring you somebody that isn't a Christian, somebody that doesn't belong to him. I'm not talking about just somebody who says it, but somebody who lives it. And how could you put yourself in a position where you'd want to have sex? Again, I understand that you have sexual desire as well. But if God brings you a man, it will be a man who will love you the way Jesus wants you loved. It won't be somebody who pressures you into having sex. It won't be somebody who moves in with you without a commitment. Now, he may have his problems and his issues, but but see, God's not going to bring that man into your life. And I can promise you, if you continue this relationship or rekindle this relationship, being married to an unbeliever is going to be more painful than you ever imagined. I know it feels good now. I know you want it to work out but it simply never will you've got to decide who you love more Jesus or this man you've got to decide he loves you so much Michelle that he gave his life for you he gave his life for you and for you to forget that and exchange your relationship with Jesus for a human being who's going to lead you into sin is to miss the point of Jesus' love for you altogether so it doesn't matter about whether the relationship is committed it doesn't matter what your future plans are if this man is really from God if he loves you if he values you he will ask you to marry him and you will get married before he pressures you into having sex and by the way Having sex with somebody you're not married with is a simple series of one-night stands. It's no different than sleeping with random strangers. Why is it wrong? It's wrong because God said to. And He gets to make the rules. So I'm begging you, wait for the man that God brings. Repent of your sin And that's one of the troubling things about this email, Michelle, is that it doesn't seem like you're you're sad that you broke God's heart. Sometimes we who are adults, you know, we think the rules don't apply to us. But God didn't tell you this because he doesn't want you to have fun or he doesn't want you to be with somebody. He tells you these things because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. He knows the perfect plan that he has for you. And I can tell you point blank that unless this man comes back repentant and gives his heart to Jesus Christ, this man's not the man that God wants for you to have. And you're going to find yourself fighting against God. So please, 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 please don't sell Jesus out for a physical relationship with a man. Please, please, please. Probably not what you wanted to hear, Michelle, but I hope that was clear enough. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We would love your live calls. I don't know why last week the phones got quiet. Toward the end of the week before they got quiet, earlier than that, we had tons of calls. The program is always better when you are calling. Here is a question from our email inbox from Thomas. Good afternoon, Pastor On. My query, good word, Thomas, my query for you is about the beginning. In the beginning, God created. We understand that the angels were created sometime prior to this statement in Genesis. So what or when is this beginning? And then he says this, Thomas, this is cruel. I have an answer, but I want to hear your thoughts on it. <laughs> thank you, Pastor. I hope your good day continues. Thomas, thank you. Um, Thomas, the truth is nobody knows when the angels were created. Um, sometime in eternity past, the angels were created. We, we don't know how long before the creation of the world as we know it occurred, the creation of man on the sixth day. Uh, we don't know it. There is no way to know it. All we know is that sometime in eternity past, God created uh, the angels. Um, and since we'll never know, there's no point in speculating on it. I always, when I get to that gen- pa- that passage in Genesis at the very beginning of the book, I always say, I translate it this way, before there was a beginning, there was God who created. And that's really as informative as I can be, Thomas, so we just don't know. I got some very specific opinions about when the fall happened and all those other things, uh, based on what I think is biblical evidence. But uh, in this particular particular question, there's just no way of knowing. Thank you, Thomas. Here is a question from our mobile app from Kirby. Uh, is there a scripture explaining as to why God was silent for 400 years before Christ came? Was there any scripture that said it was going to happen? Uh, Kirby, the answer is is no specific scripture dealing with it. We know that God was silent uh, as a judgment; His people were rebelling. Uh, we know that when anyone seeks God with diligence, um, God will be found. And so the, the the theme seems to be here that nobody was seeking the Lord. This was like a time in the time of Judges when when. Uh, Men did what seemed right to them. Uh, God can only speak when people are listening. And when they refuse to listen, God was quiet. Now, he did it knowing that Jesus was coming. He, he God, of course, had a timetable. But uh, there's no way of knowing for sure. Let's go to Nigel calling from San Antonio. Nigel, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hi, how's it going, Pastor Ron?
2: Going well, thank you.
3: Excellent. Yes, uh, I was wondering, uh, kind of was related to the, not the previous question that you just answered, but the one before it. Um, I've been thinking about it a while. A friend of mine and I were talking, um, and we, had, uh, we were talking about how the Lord exists outside of time, and we couldn't actually pinpoint a verse where it states the Lord exists outside of time. And we know that God, you know, created everything, the world, uh, all its inhabitants, the universe— uh, and so we assume that it's time itself that he also created, but we just didn't actually know where it would say the Lord exists outside of time. Mm-hmm.
2: We, we know he lives outside of time and space, um, Nigel, by, by uh, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his foreknowledge. Uh, we also know that um, heaven is 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 timeless in the sense that god is the i am you know when moses uh, asked god uh, his name he said or who should i tell he, he sent me he, he said tell him i am he didn't say i was or i will be he said i am and that's sort of the 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 where we get the yahweh or jehovah uh, the the biblical name for god Uh, It's just I am that I am is what that means. And so that's a sense of timelessness. We also know that he's the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So all of those things have the properties of timelessness. Um, You you know, Nigel, this is something that's really an interesting thing to to, to consider. Uh, What does it mean to live outside of time and space? I, I think all of the time about going into heaven and being in the present with God. And then coming back here to Earth for a thousand years, where we're going to again be constrained by time and space. Um, uh, in in the Book of Revelation, it says there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and yet there is no half an hour in heaven because it's timeless. Uh, and yet it just it it should comfort us, encouraging, encouraging us, simply because God is so powerful that everything is at the present, the I am. Now, I've got some really weird theories about that, that, that I consider, so I won't bother you with those things, but just the fact that he, he always was, and He always will be. In fact, we're told that the God who is, and who was, and is to come. So all of that timelessness uh, is is directly received from um, not His name, but but the fact that He's the Ancient of Days. Uh, the beginning and the end, and he sees all things and can choose according to what he knows about the future. Good things, good questions. Keep thinking things like that. It'll really, really open your mind and your heart to some neat things God will show you and think. Thank you, Nigel. I appreciate it very much. we got 30 minutes left in the program, Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. You're listening to The Word to Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the second half hour. I'm only saying this for my benefit, not yours. The Tuesday program. I'm going to forget I got a Bible study tomorrow night. Here is a question from our email inbox from Nacho. When Jesus was 12 and stayed at the temple as his family headed back to Nazareth, was that prompted by the fact that he was at or near the age of accountability and was now starting to prepare for the work of ministry to prepare for the work his father was going to send him to do? Uh, Nacho, if you, your your suggestion is accurate, it would have been a long preparation because he didn't start until he was about 30. Um, but but remember, Jesus grew in wisdom and grew in stature. So everything that he did, we know was prompted by orders from heaven. Now, a couple of things. Uh, reading this passage, and I'm sure this question comes from a Bible study yesterday when we finished Luke chapter 2. But... Um, our Western mentality talks about age of accountability. Uh, it wasn't so in a Jewish culture. Um, Jewish males were bar mitzvahed at 12 years old, and that's when they went into manhood. There was no coddling kid. There was no junior high school. Um, you know, they, they were accept, expected to, to accept responsibility to contribute to the family. So this was just the beginning of manhood. And so the, the fact that Jesus was 12 when this happened was really important. There's another thing that's important to consider in this story as well. Because Jesus would have been expected as the stepson of Joseph, or I think the, the NIV says, or so he was thought to be the son of Joseph. Um, that, that happens in the genealogy in chapter 3. Um, uh, Jesus would have been expected as every Jewish boy would have been, to follow in the occupational footsteps of his father. Joseph was a carpenter. So too would Jesus become a carpenter. I'm sure he'd helped his father around. I'm sure he'd apprenticed and did those things. So yes, he was a carpenter's son and and undoubtedly uh, was skilled at carpentry work. Wouldn't you, by the way, like to have a table made by Jesus or a dresser or something made by Jesus would have been the best carpentry ever but the point is in this episode when he left his parents it wasn't that Joseph and Mary were being bad parents or neglectful parents it was just Jerusalem would have been teeming with people it would have been easy to lose track of an adventurous 12 year old and Jesus was making a statement Now remember he always did what pleased his father he only did what He saw His Father do and only said what He heard His Father say. It's very important for us to understand. So this was directed by His real Father in Heaven. And so when He went in and He was asking questions of the, the rabbis and they would answer His question and then He would question them and provide answers for them and they were amazed it says it is His answers. So when Mary shows up and says, Son, why have you treated us like this? We've been looking, your father and I, she said, have been looking for you, and we've been frantic. I remember losing our son one time. I told the story in yesterday's message. I just thought, Paula, how could you lose our our baby? He was less than two years of age. We found him, by the way, so don't blame Paula. Your father and I have been looking frantically for you. And Jesus said, didn't you know I have to be about my father's business? In other words, at 12 years of age, Jesus knew who his father was. And he was following in the occupational footsteps, so to speak, of his father in heaven. He was in the house of God. He was giving answers about the very word of God, the law and the prophets. And everyone shaking their head, where did this kid get this information? The rabbis would have thought, how dare he correct me? But they couldn't withstand his wisdom. They, they had nothing to say. So it wasn't about the age of accountability. It was just a commentary on Jewish life where 12-year-olds were expected then to contribute to the family in terms of providing materially, doing the work, taking responsibility for younger siblings. Big families were really encouraged. And so he would have had responsibility. One other thing, Nacho, you remember much later, some 18-plus years later, Jesus' family went to take control of him because they thought he was out of his mind. One of the reasons that they would have thought he was out of his mind they wanted to control is because Jesus wasn't working to provide for his family. The responsibility that would normally fall on the oldest son, and even if the father died, and clearly by that time, Joseph had died. He was always about and only about his father's business because his real father, of course, was God, our father. So I hope that helps. Here is a question from from our mobile app, from Curious. Would John the Baptist been a part of the caravan that Jesus would have been in when the families... Went to Jerusalem for the Passover? Almost certainly not. Um, they didn't live in the same place, so the families would have traveled from their own hometowns. Um, both of them were 12. John, of course, six months older um, than, than Jesus was. Uh, and while they were cousins, there's not much evidence that they had much contact at all, so uh almost surely he would not have been in the same caravan. It would have been uh, the family and people from his hometown of Nazareth. It was just safer to travel in numbers, and that's the way it would have been by the way, and Thank you for asking the the question curious um, this wins or i 'm sorry this Sunday coming up, uh, we are going to be introduced to an adult. John the Baptist, between chapter 2 and 3, at the end of chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3, some 18 years has elapsed, and now it's John the Baptist's time to to, to be involved in his ministry completely. So I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question from our mobile app. Why do you think Genesis 4-7 is the first mention of sin, since Adam and Eve's sins were the first? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must not rule over it. Uh, anonymous uh, sin was, was mentioned in chapter 3. That's the fall of man. So the first mention of sin in the Bible is Eve's disobedience in, in eating the fruit from the forbidden tree. So Genesis 4.7 might be the first time the word sin is used, um, but certainly sin is spoken about. The, the big sin, the fall of Adam, um, uh, is mentioned in chapter 3. Uh, when God says to Cain, uh, he says, why are you so downcast? What's bugging you? And then he says, because God knows everything. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And then he warned him, because he cared for him, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to, literally, it's not just have you, it's to own you, to master you, but you must master it. And, of course, we know Cain did not take God's advice. Um, Once it happened, Cain's response was, my punishment is more than I can bear. It seems to me that's always the way that we respond when we get caught. But in this particular case, um, sin was mentioned uh, and entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. Thank you, Anonymous. I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Beth. Beth says, Pastor, I have a friend who says she is a Christian but doesn't believe in the Bible. Is that possible? Beth, it's possible with a qualifier. Uh, It's not possible to be a real Christian and oppose the Bible. Um, real Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in the, the same Holy Spirit that wrote uh, what we call our Bible. Um, but it is very possible, I'm an example of it, to become a believer without any understanding of how it could be God's Word. Um, when I got saved, I was 100% convinced the Bible was just a book written by men that had no value in my life. Uh, but all that changed that's when I got saved so if somebody isn't yet born again and they don't believe the Bible they can still get saved however and this is important to reject the Bible as a real believer a real Christian in whom the Holy Spirit dwells is impossible you can read it and you can say I don't understand it And he will eventually, the Holy Spirit will open up its meaning to you. You can say, I don't get it. Or you can be like the question we had in the first half of the program. I don't know why uh, having sex with somebody in a committed relationship is wrong. You can have all those opinions, and we do. But when you really belong to Jesus, when the Holy Spirit lives in you, as you read the Word, it's our job to agree with him. And so we have to change our opinions about these things. So if this is a friend who says she's a Christian, has been a Christian, if she's uh, not just a brand new believer, um, Beth, it isn't possible that she's a Christian who doesn't believe in the Bible. You know, one of the things that somebody like me deals with all the time, I get questions or emails uh, following messages that I do, well, that's just your opinion. Other people believe differently. You see, the Bible is not about our interpretation. It's about what it says. It's about what it says. And again, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, which has to be the case if you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, then the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible will convince you that the Bible's true. I've said this on this program many times, it is the one question that every Christian has to deal with very early in their walk with Jesus. There is nobody, nobody, nobody who gets saved and doesn't have a million questions. That was the case for me. And every time I would ask a Christian, you know, I figured everybody knew more than I did when I was a brand new believer. So I would ask everybody, what about this and what about this? And they would always answer with this, the Bible says, and that didn't make sense to me. So if the answer to every question was going to be the Bible says, I had to find out if the Bible was authoritative. I had to find out if I could depend on it, or if it was just some silly thing that Christians believed. And I made it the goal of my life. And Beth, I would challenge your friend to make finding out whether or not the Bible is true the single most important job in her life. If she has no interest, then ask her, what makes you think you're saved? If the Bible's true, We who call ourselves by the name of Christ, we need to find out, and once we do, we need to live it. Now, typically, Beth, when I get a question like this, the reason somebody doesn't believe in the Bible, because the Bible tells a bunch of stuff that we can't do. I want to have sex with people I'm not married to. I want to do this, or I want to do that. The Bible says don't do it, so we just choose not to believe in it, rather than to be honest and find out whether or not it's true. I can tell you this, Beth, and you can tell your friend, that when I purposed in my heart, again, I was a very, very young Christian, six months in the Lord, and I set it out to make the mission of my life, finding out if the Bible was really God's Word. Didn't understand how it could, but I can tell you this, that once I found out, once I was completely and unalterably convinced. I've not had one minute's doubt of my salvation, my security in the Lord, the fact that He loves me or that He's with me, not one minute of doubt in the 26 and a half years since then. And so, ask your friend to be intellectually honest. Why don't you believe in the Bible? Did you check it out? Are you just listening to what people say? Or is it because you're doing something the Bible tells you you shouldn't do? You'll be a very good friend to her, Beth, if in fact you'll challenge her on this. Thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an interesting question from Daniel. Is it possible for a believer to vote for a party or a candidate that supports abortion or homosexual marriage? Daniel, everything is possible. Um, it would be naive and wrong, and by the way, judgmental, uh, for us to believe that out of the hundreds of millions of people that call themselves Democrats, that there are no Christians, there are believers. Personally, I don't know how any Christian born again could support somebody who murders babies or someone who allows people with freedom to go to hell by endorsing same-sex marriage. I don't, I don't get it. I've asked people who did support pro-abortion candidates and certainly pro-gay marriage candidates, how could you do that? And they say, well, to me, abortion or gay marriage isn't the end-all, be-all subject. I had somebody tell me that Social justice means more to them and they're voting for the party that they think reflects that. But, but, but there's no comparison in the gravity of sins between murdering innocent children. Make no mistake, that's what abortion is. And social justice issues. We live in a fallen world and it's messed up. There are people who are victims. There are people who are treated terribly. Really bad things happen. But that's not the same as slaughtering 65 million babies. With regard to gay marriage, to support gay marriage, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who makes one of my little ones stumble, it'd be better for him or for her than to to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown in the ocean. If we tell somebody, I support you in this gay marriage or I vote for somebody who's going to do that. We're causing people to stumble. We're telling them that sin is good. Isaiah chapter 5 talks about a time in Israel that we live in now in the West in the 21st century, a time when good is called evil and evil is called good. And every time we support somebody who believes in those things we're causing people to stumble we're calling good evil and evil good so what we gotta do Daniel is just be very very careful and vote according to your conscience but please don't automatically assume that anybody who votes for the democratic party in this case who supports both of those things can't possibly be a believer um their works in progress as well, and if they really know the Lord, God will convince their hearts. At some point, God will change their mind. That's sort of the identity of a Christian where people agree with Jesus. So I hope that helps a little bit. 340-9585 here is a question from Ken. He says, how should Bible studies be handled at home with the entire family? Ken, thanks for asking that question. Uh, I, for one, now it works different, differently for different people, but I, for one, don't think that the, the husband or the father ought to sort of set up a pulpit in the house and, and preach to his family. I think Bible says at home should be handled by reading it and discussing what you read. Personally, I would keep the segments of Scripture that we're talking about small, you have to keep in mind the age differences in your children, especially their ability to pay attention. But keep those sections small, and then just have a discussion in the family about it. It's an amazing thing, and we, we try to figure it out on our own mind, you know. But, but, but the Bible is supernatural. And when we're in it with our family together, supernatural things happen. The family's hearts are knitted together. So, again, paying attention to the attention span of your children. Um, Don't go too long, don't go too deep, but just read it and let the Word sort of wash over them. But I also think it ought to be read consistently, in other words, don't start one day in one place and the next day in a completely different book. Read through a book until you get to the end of the book. Now, Ken, with your wife. Um, we can kick it up a notch. I think husbands and wives need to be in the Word together. You know, every time I do marriage counseling, and and, um, we do a lot of it here, every single time, whoever starts first will say, here's our problem. The other will say, no, this is the problem. You're the problem. Whatever it is, I'll just say, can I stop you for a minute? How much time are you guys spending in the Bible together? And 100% of the time, the answer is, well, we don't. I said, you wonder why you're here? You wonder why you can't get along? So husbands and wives need to be in the Word together. God will supernaturally knit your hearts together. But you've got to give them the chance to do it. One other thing, Ken. After you've taken the responsibility to teach your family and to read with and to your wife. You need to be in the Bible for your own study. You've got to keep getting fed. So too is that the case with your parents and ch- or with your wife and children. But you've got to be consistent personally so God can speak to you and then through you speak to others. It doesn't mean that you become a pastor in the house. It doesn't mean that, that, that you dictate to them. It means you talk about the things of God. You have a chance to share with your family how much God loves them, how precious they are to Him. Here's something else that will happen, Ken, when you're doing that. I promise you that if you blew it the night before and you yelled at Him, God won't let you get away with that and you'll have to apologize to Him. And that is a Bible study in and of itself. Very, very important. So, Ken, I hope that helps. By the way, morning devotions are nonsense. We, we always try to make the, take the easy way out when it comes to, to, to reading the Bible or doing study. Read the Bible. Don't read Our Daily Bread. Don't read My Utmost for His Highest. Read the Bible. If devotional materials help you individually, don't let those replace the Bible simply because they're easier, quicker, and easier to understand. Thank you very much. Ray from San Antonio on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hi, Pastor Ron. I know we're short on time, but I I was thinking about uh, a couple of things that uh, I know Paula said uh, on occasion. She had uh, answered numerous uh, altar calls and, you know, wondered if she was really saved because of certain things. And, you know, that's not the point. But when you said that uh, once you were convinced that the Bible was, and you know what I mean, um, that that what was it that turned opened your eyes, or what you know was it one thing, or was it just a lack of being completely exhausted with questions that were you know what? What Many people have a specific time when they go, I got saved on, you know, X day, that hour, and that's how. And I just wondered, what was it for you, if that yeah. is yeah, clear it, enough.
2: it is, Ray. Thank you. Uh, and I'll close the program with this today. You know, uh, for Paula, um, she was like a lot of Christians. She, she really belonged to him, but she just didn't know him very well. She didn't understand the Bible. She didn't read it all that much. A lot of us think we get our insurance policy cashed in heaven, and that's all we have to do. Uh, For me, Ray, I'm just so curious. Uh, My brain works different than most. Things have to make sense to me. And so if I ask questions, and I had a million of them, and every question started with, or every answer started with, well, the Bible says... Um, I made the connection instantly that, well, if the Bible's a fraud, then what Christians believe is a fraud. So I had to find out. And to me, there was no more important question to deal with, and in the process, it took me about two and a half months before I was completely convinced, had no more questions. Um, God just began opening His heart to me in the Word. I can't explain this, but when I started reading the Bible, and I didn't open a Bible for six months. I had a Bible, but it was like every time I opened it, I'd get a little sick to my stomach, get a little nauseous. And um, I, I know now it's spiritual warf- warfare. But but when I finally started reading it, I kind of got it. And it doesn't mean I knew everything. It just instantly I thought, well, it says this, so this is how my life has to change. And when when, when I started doing what it said... My life changed so completely, so radically, and so quickly that there was no more question and and thus no doubt at all. Great, thank you. That's a great question to consider. Thanks for tuning in today. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630. The Word at 4 o'clock. May the Lord bless you and keep you. In the meantime, tell somebody that Jesus loves them. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.